0: Please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode, I'm talking to Kyle Frost, an independent financial planner from Sydney's central coast. Kyle started a business called Millennial Independent Advice, so I think he is well placed to answer some of my tough questions, such as, how do you use the 1st home super saver scheme if you're young and you want to get ahead? What are some of the steps that you could take if you have a mortgage, but you don't have enough in your emergency cash savings? And I also asked Kyle, what could a couple do in their late 50s if they want to prepare for retirement in 5 to 10 years? All that and more in this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Kyle, thanks for joining me on the podcast, mate. G'day, how are you going? I'm wonderful, mate. It's um, it's my privilege to have you here. i I got to tell listeners that um, you and I had hope to do this on better circumstances because I'm a big fan of what you do and um, the business that you've started. Um, It just so happens that I'm tapping into your uh, expertise and your experience now at a relatively uncertain time for people. But why don't
1: you just tell us a little bit about yourself and the business that you've started? Yeah, likewise, which was um, so slightly better times in terms of market timing and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, in, t- in terms of my business, um, I guess I kicked off uh, probably around January, February um, of last year in 2019 and always worked in um, financial advice since coming out of uni in 2013 or so. And um, I guess always had a passion, I guess, probably come into the industry, I guess, when there was a lot of change in, in the industry and whatnot, always, I, I guess, was quite a about, I guess, independence uh, with, with financial advice. So, um, it got to the stage where, I guess, uh, I guess I, um, I guess I I wanted to do, to do things more my way rather than the things the way it had been in the past. So, I um, decided to kick off and do it myself, But I guess, if there was no, I guess, ideal do, do job that, I guess, could do what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, so, I kicked off um, last year and, um, I guess, my, my business business focuses around, I guess, providing um, independent financial advice, primarily to millennials, but it's not always um, that case as the, I guess, business has turned out. Um, And it's really like just on a, I guess, more engagement basis. There's no necessarily like ongoing, um, I guess, advice or anything like that. It's more just saying, well, this is the issue that we're dealing with now, but let's, I guess, work that out. If there's another issue down the track and 12 months later or something like that, we'll um, we'll deal with that as it comes up and, I guess, re-engage thereafter.
0: Yeah, great. So it's it's to summarise, independent. Uh, the name mm-hmm. of the business is Millennial Independent uh, Advice, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And although it kind of says it on the tin, what you do, you also serve clients across a variety of different demographics and different situations. And I, I guess we've we've spoken about business strategy and and even before we started our respective businesses, how we would go about, I guess, best executing. What we had in mind, and it's only been a few months for you, but I guess it's a combination of your preparedness and the timing in terms of the royal commission and all that type of thing. Where you've now, in less than a year, you've now been able to, uh, or, yeah, you've been able to grow your business in a way that probably demand exceeds supply. So your your incoming inquiries exceeding what you can actually do in a day.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, I guess, starting off my new business because I was always, I guess, going to start off from scratch I wasn't going to buy another business because that usually, I guess, involves buying commissions and things like that. So that wasn't ever a business strategy. So I was always going to be starting from scratch. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget, like, uh, my, I grew up on the, I guess, Newcastle and lived on the Central Coast, which I guess is about two hours away from Sydney. So that's more like thinking of Geelong, your Victorian uh, listeners, for example. And um, I guess when I went for my first Sydney interview, um, so I would have been um, 23 at the time, I think. And I remember sitting down in the interview in, in Sydney and um, I, the first thing that the, um, I guess, quite successful financial advisor said was, um, you're going to struggle in this industry um, because clients like, I guess, men with grey hair and pot bellies. <laughs> um, so from that moment, um, I always thought that, well, that I'm young. I probably look younger than I um, even am as well. I think from that point of view, I always, whether or not it was, I guess, just a perception that I had, I always thought that, well, it'd be tough for me starting a business, I guess, I guess going after and trying to attract like your standard financial advice clients who, I guess it looks like, I guess it's usually like someone, if not at retirement or approaching retirement and with large asset balances. So. Um, Rather than I guess just trying to I guess kind of compete against everybody else, I think that that was one part of the business strategy. Um, and on the other side of that, I think that it was more more satisfaction I guess working with I guess younger people in terms of. Um, you can actually see the results like maybe on a dollar for dollar basis like you're not adding as much value in terms of like if there's large balances and um, large incomes like you can there's probably more strategies from a tax point of view and investment point of view naturally um, there's potentially more value to be added but i wouldn't say that um, you're not changing lives as much i guess like a lot of these people they're going to be wealthy regardless um, of what what advice you give so i guess from a i guess career satisfaction point of view that was i guess why I um, always want to go down the uh, millennial side of things and I guess to t- take a step back. So starting off my business, like it's pretty um, explicit that I'm obviously, um, I guess, looking to work with millennial clients. But um, on the independent theme as well is that unfortunately, there's not that many independent advisors out there um mm. so i guess i've had quite a number of um i guess your, your typical retiree type customers uh which surprisingly have reached out and also i guess just from a few like um, referrals um for instance from um, other financial advisors and things like that i've been fortunate that um that um i guess um, those those clients are uh, still um i guess come in to, to i guess seek my advice and if i feel i can add value there um have, I, I enjoy working with them from time to time as well yeah. with a bit of variety, I guess.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it's and it's just so good to see that it's it's um it can be done and you've done it you've done it as well as you have. Um I I'd like to pick your brain on a few things and um in particular some I guess of your some some advice you would give just as in a general sense to people in various situations. So I've I've structured this episode around kind of what we're seeing in financial markets, but given your expertise is in personal finance dealing with people one-on-one handling more complex cases, handling more complex, I guess, situations where people want to do things that are, I guess, obviously important to them, but, you know, not things that you can just get an answer to if you were to, I don't know, go to a website or something like that. But given the situation and the timing of us recording this uh, being mid-March 2020, the, the, the elephant in the room is, you know, are we staring down the barrel of a financial collapse? Is there a market crash? You know, we, we probably can acknowledge that maybe it has crashed if you, if you could label it as such already. But, you know, what are the implications of that? And I guess going forward, what are some sound um, principles and strategies people can cling to uh, as they listen to this podcast? So you wrote an article for us recently, which effectively compared compounding uh, from the perspective of Warren Buffett. So we talk about Warren Buffett and in your article you say, you know, he started off with X amount when he was 30, but by the time he was 60 or even 50, you know, 99% of his wealth came after that age. And it wasn't so much the decisions that he made after 60, it was the decisions that he made long before 60. And that is such, and as such, the power of compound interest is that the decisions we make today have a significant impact on us later in life. and. What I thought was quite neat that you ha- how you tied this together is you can think of compounding working for us in the case of our finances, which we talk about a lot. But you spoke to it in the case of um, it having a harmful impact on us and us under, I guess, appreciating the consequences of the spread of coronavirus and um, how, I guess, the decisions that we make today influence us in 10, 20, 50 or 100 days from today. So, um, I know this is a long winded way to introduce some of the questions that I'm going to be asking you, but I just wanted to direct people to that. It's available on a website. I'll provide it in the show notes. So I thought if you're comfortable, Kyle, maybe we could, I could throw some hypothetical questions at you. Yep, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I've just structured these questions. I'm just going kind to of come up with them um, out of thin air, but some of the, I guess, questions that people would want answered right now. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation and here I go. Okay. So a question might be, Hey guys, My partner and I are in our 20s and we're looking to buy a house. We have a high growth super strategy. Currently, we're looking at a home and saving $2,000 a month. Should we consider investing that money now to take advantage of the falling stock market or should we keep saving?
1: Yeah, I'd probably say this is probably one of the more common scenarios that I have. Um, so a little bit about my business um, is that I'll oh, usually, I, I guess, have an initial, I guess, 10, 15-minute, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, chat with people and there's no, I guess, fee for, fee for that um, consultation. So this is, I guess, when, when people are calling me up. It's probably the more common scenarios that I have. Um, and I think probably, so over the last 12 months since I've been in business, probably the most common, I guess, question has been, Kyle, I have x thousand dollars fifty hundred thousand dollars ten thousand whatever it may be um in the bank and i want to invest it can you help me invest um, then invariably, my next question is, well, like, what are your life plans? What, what's your plan with, I guess, property? Because that's usually the biggest driver mm. at some point for, I guess, most young people. Um, and invariably, it's usually like, well, this is actually my home deposit. I'm thinking maybe in three years' time, I might be at that point. Um, and I, I, it's been quite frustrating because like, you can only get 2% in the bank account, and that's why they're coming to me, I guess. Um, and I can almost, like, I guess, that they get deflated when I, I guess, just talk about the long-term um, I guess so cycles of the share market and it's probably not for, the, for those like short-term kind of gold savings accounts. Um, and so I guess for a lot of the last year, um, that's probably looked like bad advice to a lot of those people that have um, spoken to me and a lot of the time, like they haven't really proceeded after that call because it's hard to, I guess, I guess I can understand that people don't want to pay, I guess, for advice but just to keep it in their bank account, for instance. Um, so in that scenario, like it, I guess over the last couple of weeks, for instance, those people, that i haven't spoken to in six 12 months or so um have come back to me and i guess i guess realize that well maybe in this scenario um kyle kyle was right and probably most of the time i would be wrong in that scenario just because markets generally trend up Um, but there's i think just protecting yourself from the downside um Mm. is when you have a home deposit and you have to use it in three years time you don't want to be there in three years time and the market's down 20 20% 20% like it is at the moment um, and that, that's obviously going to affect when you can I guess um, implement that life, life goal I guess yep. um, so if, back to the question uh, I guess the, the normal question would be like, I guess when are you planning to go and buy a property um, and, and I would normally say that um, like if, you, if you're being conservative, you could, you could say that well, seven years that that like that's sh- you know, on a lot of these products that you're investing in in terms of share market products, that's like the recommended minimum investment time frame. Um, and so, I guess if you have been conservative, you could say, well, if I need this money in the next seven years, like, like growth assets like the share market probably aren't for me. Some people might say five, and um, okay, that's a, a little bit risky, but it's that's still quite conservative. And I think you can look back to the GFC uh, when like the market declined, for instance. Um, I think it was about five and a half odd years, like if you're invested in like a, a high growth portfolio, for instance, that if you invested $10,000, it was around five and a half years that you'd have your $10,000 back. And so that's in, uh, I guess, that's including all your dividends reinvested or distributions and whatnot. Mm. Um, so obviously that's an extreme scenario. Who knows if we're at that extreme scenario at the moment. Um, but I guess that's the, the basis uh, around, I guess, that long-term um, thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess with, with that in mind, like you, you could say, well, the, the market's down. So, it's uh, there's not going to be that, like based on, I guess, arithmetic. There's not going to be because you've already missed out on a lot of those um, losses. But, um, I guess by that, you could say that, well, I'm taking on less risk now, even though it's easier said than done than I would have been if I invested a month or so ago. Um, but I think that it's still, by doing that, you're trying to like kind of, that's an element of time in the market. And, mm. um, I'd, I'd, that probably wouldn't be something I'd recommend. The interesting thing that you, you mentioned, like the high growth super strategy, um, something that um, has concerned me for some time, and I think I did a blog post maybe a couple of few months or so ago on it, mm. is that there's a thing called the first home super savers game. Yep. Um, so I don't know if many of your listeners have, I guess, looked into it, but the government, I guess, has provided incentive for people to save for their first home. Um, through their super and so people can I guess contribute I guess up to fifteen thousand dollars a year um into I guess your, your super and there's tax benefits of doing so and that's fifteen thousand so that's included in your your general concessional cap of twenty five thousand so if you're a higher income earner I think it's around the hundred five dollars mark you can't do that fifteen uh, oh, thousand right. dollar contribution just, just because of your standard like um I guess employer contributions come in exceed ten thousand dollars for instance. Uh, so that, that's something to keep in mind. But yeah so that, that's been a pretty common um strategy that um like a, it's been quite a lot of interest on it online um and there, there's good reasons to do so it's pretty com- complex scheme probably overcomplicates a simple matter mm. in terms of trying to stay for your first home and giving people a leg up but it, usually, there's about five thousand dollars of tax savings I generally find per person. So if you're thinking of about a couple, uh, they can potentially save like sixty thousand dollars, and there might be a bit of a leg up in terms of five thousand dollars each. And like that's a rough figure; it depends on like your tax brackets and um, things like that. Um, but a lot of people have just put that into super. And Mm. so most people's supers invested, if they haven't done anything about it, it's probably like in a balanced 70-30 fund or it might be, I guess, in in a lifecycle fund that might be more, I guess, allocated if you're young to growth assets. And something that I've feared is that if a market happens like this, um i guess you're going to take those funds out and you can take them all out because i guess the withdrawal amount's not based on market movements it's based on like i guess um, mm. a deemed rate effectively that the government gives so you can take it all out so it's happy days from a home deposit point of view but if the market's down a lot like it is at the moment you've effectively sold your losses and that's going to severely impact your i guess future retirement balance so you're kind of stealing from yourself in a way
0: Yeah. So you're Uh, saying, so you're saying if, if, if you put say you've got $20,000 extra in there and then you use that for a deposit at the worst time, like now you're effectively, you, you don't have the ability to compound that money because you've sold at that, at that time. Do you also incur tax as a result of that?
1: Yeah. So on the way out, um, on the way out, you do get taxed on those um, like the withdrawals. Um, So (laughs) we've got, I'll try not to go down into the weeds too much, but the way it works is that you make a concessional contribution. So that's taxed at 15% as opposed to your marginal tax rate at 39%, for instance. And then when you take that out, it's taxed as well, but you get a tax offset of 30% on that. So A lot of people forget about that tax on the way out. Um And so you usually find is that on the way in it gets taxed at fifteen percent and then you can take eighty like eighty five percent of your original contribution out and then it 's taxed at the offset so if you 're on a thirty nine percent marginal tax rate, so that means your income's between say ninety and one hundred thousand dollars that 's effectively taxed at nine percent so 70% yeah, right. less the thirty percent offset so it's not um, like it 's not taxed heavily on the way out but it 's definitely something to factor into the calculations. Um, on that, but I guess I think when I did the modelling, don't, don't have it up in front of me, that I, I made the example like I've modelled what happened in with Australian Super, for instance, at the GFC if you're invested in the high growth option. So, Australian Super is like one of the biggest funds in Australia. So, I thought I'd just use that in terms of a real life example, in terms of everybody's familiar yeah, sure. with that. And I think I did it with the scenario that if if you had nine thousand dollars in your Australian super account before you did this scheme, just from like I guess your standard employee contributions, and then you did this scheme and took all your funds out, so you had nine thousand dollars in the high growth option, then you put thirty odd thousand dollars in, so you got forty odd thousand dollars in there, and then the market goes down, I think it was twenty odd percent, twenty five percent or something like that in terms of the high growth option. You effectively, when you take out your $30,000, you've effectively wiped out that $9,000 that you initially had. Just, just right. in terms of because you, you've sold down when you, I guess, had it. So that, I, I use that example just to, because it get, can get murky because most people might have $50,000 in their super or something like that. Um, so it, it's, I guess, really murky in terms of, well, what's my home deposit and what's my, um, I guess, long-term super savings from an investment allocation point of view. Um, so in that example, like if you think about when, when you're 25, 30, whatever age you are, if you think about $9,000 of, I guess, super, it doesn't sound like much at that point in time, but if you compound 9% at 8% mm. or whatever long-term return you want to put on that over time, um, that move like resulted in hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in difference. Uh, so, so the, yeah,
0: sorry. So I was going to say, so what would be, so if what would be the better what would be the best outcome here like what would you tell someone to do if they are considering using the first home super saver scheme or would you not say to use that
1: there, there's two ways to um, do it so I, I think that if you're confident that you're around your timeline in terms of when you're going to be buying a home in terms of you've got a couple of years and you're not going to be in a massive rush at that point in time because there's admin issues with taking those funds back out as well so you normally think with property purchases that they normally happen pretty quickly in terms of if you based on emotion you see a house you like, and usually things happen quite quickly. Um, and with this scheme, if it's in the super fund, it, it might take a month or so um, to get it out because you have to get ATO approval and you have to get the yep. fund. Those two institutions generally don't work that quickly. Um, <laughs> so with, with that in mind, so if all of that makes sense, and it makes sense from a tax point of view, and you know it's going to be for your first home because it doesn't work for an investment property, for instance, um, Like it, it can be a strategy that definitely is worthwhile. So, if all of those boxes are ticked, um, I, I guess there, there's two ways that you can go about it. You can, I guess, reallocate your investment option within your super fund. So, let's say that you're, um, I guess, invested in a balanced or high growth allocation that's appropriate for you for your long term super savings. You can, like, put your thirty dollars $15,000 a year and, I guess, work out the percentages and then effectively allocate that to a cash or fixed interest option. Um, because, similar to my original point, is that for your first home deposit, if you're going to be using it in the next three, five years or something like that, you're it's. If you're doing it outside of super, you're probably going to invest it in cash or something conservative. But all of a sudden when people use this scheme because they're going to get the, I guess, government deemed rate, right, they don't invest within super as they would outside of super. And I think that's where the danger lies. And unfortunately, it, it has in this scenario, which I, I wouldn't have predicted that it would happen this quickly. Um, but uh, I think if people are buying in the next six months, for instance, they could be severely affected by this. Yeah, um, so I- that's one way to go about it is to just be conscious of it and reallocate within your super. Um, the percentages another way to go about it um, which i actually could, could prefer but you've just got to find um, the right super funds like so you're not avoid so you're not getting those fixed fees that, that work out to be a big percentage of smaller balances um is to set up a 100 separate super fund oh yeah um, so so by doing that you can have 100 separate super fund and you know well this is this is my home deposit, like, and there's no other funds here, this is it kind of thing. Um, And you can just allocate 100% of that to cash or fixed interest, for instance, Um, and it's just a lot cleaner uh, from that regard. Um, And, yeah, I would just stress around that there are, like, uh, funds and there's a couple of industry funds, for instance, that they only charge percentage-based fees. Um, So, when you're talking about percentage-based fees, that's good on lower balances because most funds will charge $78, Um, for instance, Mm. as like an admin fee and $78 on $10,000 is 0.78%, which works out to be a big amount, I guess. So, um, that's just something to be conscious of as well. But yeah, moral to the story, I guess, is to, if you're investing in super with the scheme, is to invest as you would outside in your personal name. Just don't change the rules just because it's within super yeah that's so, okay
0: so that's great so we've talked a, this is a long and hopefully hopefully the next is will bit quicker but we've talked a lot about this because, <laughs> no, no, this is really good because someone in this situation is thinking well how can i do something with this money but also get ahead and get my deposit bigger sooner and you're saying well hey why don't you use the consider at least the first home super saver scheme Here's the things that you should be thinking about if you're doing it. And there are tax savings because of X, Y, and Z. Yes, it might be a bit complicated, uh, you know, more complicated than just, I guess, sticking it somewhere with one click of a button. But this is something that you can really investigate yourself and, and look into the pros and cons of that. So that's really good. And it's not where I thought you, when I was doing these hypothetical questions, I didn't think you'd come out with such an answer, which is quite often the way with me. So you better be prepared. (laughs) No, testament to you, like this, this, to your expertise, this is why why I wanted to get you on the show because these are the ways that you can help people. Okay, so I'm just going to skip ahead to the next question and I'll quote, hello, I'm a tradie in my late 20s. So again, a younger person, late 20s. Um, I have a good job. Earning $110,000 as an electrician, but I'm not on wages. I'm a contractor only. Will the fall in financial markets impact my finances? If so, what are some steps I can take right now? And I will say that you did share a good story with me on this, um, but there will be a lot of people that listen to the show or partners of um, people who listen to the show that um, are in this situation. So I'm really keen to hear what you have to say here, Carl.
1: Yeah, so I think, um, I guess in regards to that person in particular, so if you're in your... I guess, late 20s, um, you, you may not have, I guess, have not significant, I guess, financial assets in terms of investing in the share market at that point in time. So in terms of the fall in the financial markets directly affecting you, um, you're super going to be down as a result, but um, like that probably hasn't affected you a great deal in that scenario unless you hold your home deposit or something like that in shares, as we just discussed. Uh, so I'd probably say like, obviously the fall in financial markets, that's telling us something about the direction of the economy um you'd imagine um so i think that with all the uh, i guess talk in the media and whatnot of coronavirus and potential um, economic impacts of that um like i think that would be the the thing to be concerned about um, so i think there's um i guess in the government stimulus package the other day like support for apprentices and things like that so the government is around i guess if this trade in particular, um or, or i guess conscious around that just to i guess so sort of support um, stimulus around that um so i think that the more i guess concerning thing would, would be i guess the, the economic side of things um mm. so, so you touched on it um probably uh, whether or not it's the reason why i got into financial advice I, i'm not sure if it was unconscious or conscious or not but um probably when i was um, youngest so when i was 14 to 16 i think it was um my um, dad oh, i guess um, had, I guess growing up in Newcastle that had done um, quite quite well and um, probably had been over-leveraged um, coming up to the GFC and was in a particularly um i guess uh, yeah, i guess industry to be impacted from that so since the Gfc hit like, income significantly dropped and obviously the debts and all that continue um so that uh, caused i guess financial stress that over a period of time resulted in the loss of the house um for instance in regards to that so I think just i guess from that experience obviously i wasn't working at that point in time or it wasn't I guess me directly um just seeing i guess that what i guess um, impacts of i guess loss of Job or loss of income can, can have around um, this side of things is, I guess, coming up to this potential stage and who knows what's going to happen to the economy. But if there are measures to, I guess, uh, I guess take steps beforehand, I, I think that, um, that there's nothing to be lost by, I guess, being prepared uh, in mm-hmm. that regard in a lot of instances. Um, so if, for instance, if you, you mentioned like the trading in um, late 20s um, on $110,000, um, it'd be interesting, like, like, if they're, I guess, have, have, I guess, cash assets and have a home deposit or an emergency account, like, they're, they're potentially, uh, I guess, um, or that they could actually be positively affected by these if they keep their jobs and if like something economically happens that affects share prices and that affects i guess the property market for instance and things like that um because i guess if you're a net buyer of securities or a net buyer of property and that in the future you're going to be buying more of these, you actually i guess it's a benefit for you for the markets to decline so with that in mind like there, there could be um opportunities um there but on the other side like I think that at times like this, like unemployment could tick up. So just preparing that, like my income, I guess I don't know who my employer is. Um, so it'd be um, just, just to keep an eye close on that, whether you're an electrician or whether you're in the private or probably public sector is a little bit more protected. Um, is just just at times like this, it's just, just to think about the scenarios and around your job security. Um, yeah. And how that could potentially um, impact you. Yeah,
0: you know, I think one of the things that, you, you touch on here, and I think it's the important point, but it's probably the one that people don't necessarily think to as much is the job security so if you keep your job if you know that's the big thing uh, because it's that income coming in right so it's it 's interesting and hearing your experience about how you know you can lose a you can lose a house um, if you're not prepared so um you know I would like to think that someone earning one hundred and ten k a year. Um, you know, I'm going to just put it out there. Maybe you're living in an expensive lifestyle or you live in, you know, Sydney where prices are more expensive than the rest of Australia or who knows what. But on $110,000, I would like to think that someone could be saving a fair bit of money, right? um
1: it's also for courses i think that uh, i from chatting to a lot of people like on their direct i guess financial situation like i wouldn't necessarily say that there's there's no relationship between i guess your wage or i guess your intelligence or anything like that in terms of i guess how much money you have or how good you are at i guess saving um so interesting I work primarily, probably most of my customers and prospects um, come from, I guess, Sydney, just as a function of, I guess, more people um, there. But I also, like, I grew up in Newcastle, so I guess I utilise an office Mm. space in Newcastle. So I guess see those, I guess, two, like, segments. Um, So, like, in the morning, I might be talking to someone who's like in Sydney and doing quite well on, on 200, dollars $250,000 or something like that, and in credit card debt um, in Sydney. And then I'll be talking to someone in, I guess, rural Newcastle on $60,000 and they've paid off their home. So, like, there's no relationship, um, I guess, between that. Like, obviously, if you have a higher income and you do have those good money habits, like, you do have the ability to get ahead quicker. Um, but... Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say that there was more of a relationship and maybe there's a, a slight, um, I guess, uh, situation there, just if you have a higher income, that you do have a little bit of um, say a bit more savings capacity. Yeah, around that, I, I wouldn't say that there's particularly rel- uh, much there.
0: Well, I guess that's, a, that's an interesting uh, point you make because if you aren't earning $110,000 like this person in this example, or $250,000 in the other, again, the more extreme example, that's good news because, you know, we, we have to look to people that do earn these big bucks and we think, you know what, you should be getting ahead financially. But as you're saying, maybe that's not necessarily the case. But when we talk about it on this podcast, we talk about, you know, the just broad rules of thumb. So we might say someone saving 10 or 20% of their wage is really important because in this case, if someone was saving 10 or 20% of their wage, that might be say one $2,000 a month that they could be building up that cash balance. If they haven't already done so, so that, you know, worst case scenario, they do lose their job, at least for the next two or three months while, they, while they're employed or what have you, they might um, be able to get themselves prepared as best they can. But um, are there any other steps that someone could take? Like, I imagine someone, if they have, you know, after pay debts or things like that, is there anything that you can say to people that you should be aiming for this amount of savings as percentage or is it, can you, can you offer something later or is it more case by case?
1: Um, yeah, it's it's definitely case by case and uh, it would depend, I guess, what areas you live in. So obviously if you're living in, I guess, Sydney or Melbourne, obviously you you probably have rent and like higher living expenses from that. And I find that wages in these, I guess, um, capital cities are high, but not, I guess, a lot higher. Um, so the classic example is if I'm chatting to a a teacher, um, in Sydney and Newcastle, usually the, um, the Newcastle teacher, it does, like, wages are the same like, in mm. that instance, so the Newcastle teacher can get ahead quite quickly um, in that regard, whereas in Sydney, because rent and um, living expenses um, are higher, it can be more difficult um, to save under that. Um, so that, that's why there's not as much disparity between wages as there are, um, sorry, there's not much yet, not much disparity between wages, but there can be in living expenses. Um, so it'd be hard to put a blanket on it around that. Um, but hmm. yeah, in terms of percentages, um, I, I tend not to, um, I, I think it can be dangerous to throw out like general percentages because it comes back to. Um, I guess people's situation and probably the, the classic one is obviously the barefoot investor. Some of the best advice he gives is around um, cash flow. So it's quite common for people to, um, I guess, call me up and be really frustrated with their situation and saying, well, I'm missing these percentages in terms of um, what I'm spending on fire extinguisher and things like that. And I think that like they're, they're great percentages to, uh, I guess, start with, um, but it can be d- dangerous, so I guess, looking at your um, situation, comparing it to that, just because there's so many other of variable so Mm. if you you mentioned that if if you're a a tradie in in like late 20s like you should have a high percentages just because you don't have those family expenses and and things like that Um, normally if you're a couple like there's because you, if you're a couple, you're sharing general, generally rent, for for instance. So you can, if you're a couple, you're sharing probably the biggest expense in terms of housing. You can't cut in that in half. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, if you have too high income earning in a couple, they're reducing their living, um, living expenses in terms of household expenses, in terms of housing. Uh, so there's more capacity there. Um, so, yeah, I think it's dangerous putting a percentage yeah. um, in that regard just because there's so many different um, elements there.
0: Yeah, right. That's fair enough. Um, okay, so I'm going to jump to the next question, um, or the next scenario, which is, and I'll quote, I have $400,000 on my mortgage, two teenage kids at home, I'm about two months ahead of my repayments via our mortgage redraw, and I have just $3,000 of cash set aside, so emergency cash, we could say. I have $1,000 outstanding in my buy now pay later apps. I think my job is secure should I start investing or should I build my cash balance and pay off my debt? So effectively, we've got someone with a mortgage, they've got responsibilities with their kids, they're a bit ahead on the mortgage repayments, a little bit of cash but also a little bit of, uh, you could say, debt. Yeah,
1: because I think probably um, with this scenario is that, thinking about the previous scenario, if they're not a homeowner, uh, for instance, there's usually if you don't have a mortgage and you don't have that um, equity, you're, you're probably not as exposed Um, Mm. if you have debt to I guess if there's a fall in unemployment that would normally you'd imagine flowing to an increase in delinquencies and that's only going to put downward pressure on the housing market and that's when you kind of see these I guess really bad situations like like you saw more of in the GFC for instance. Um, So in in this scenario um, I guess just thinking it through um, like, I'd say it'd be more, there'd be more need to be, I guess, more conscious, um, be more risk averse in, in this strategy and just really think ahead, uh, just because you've got more on the table to lose. Mm. Um, so, I, I think with that, like, if you're only, I guess, a couple of months ahead on your repayments via a mortgage redraw um, and have cash set aside, like, I, I'd probably think that you'd really want more of an emergency buffer there um, should yes. something happen.
0: Any parent could say that $3,000 with two kids is probably not going to last very long, right? Particularly if they're at home for a while.
1: (laughs) And I think like the the easy thing, if you're young and you're single, you can quite easily, it's it's easier to make sacrifices and you can live quite cheaply if you're forced to. Um, Whereas if you have a family, your options are just taken away from you in terms of there's, there's, I guess, more expenses, there's more food expenses, there's more, I guess, school expenses potentially. And um, yeah, just, I guess, the ongoing things like that, that it's harder to, I guess, pull back your expenses in in that without, I guess, um, affecting your situation. Um, Yeah, so I I think in this situation, it it depends as well, like how much um, equity would be in the property um, mm-hmm. I guess rather than just being two months ahead of the um, current mortgage. Um, but yeah, I'd be thinking that like in terms of the cash set aside um, and the buy now pay laters, I think the buy now pay laters would be a tricky one. Like it, Ideally, you'd, you'd want to clear them, but if, if you're in a dire situation, that's probably not as, I guess, crucial as paying the mortgage um, mm-hmm. in that scenario, um, like in the short term, obviously. Um, but, so I think it'd be... Um, I okay, it'd just be really about well thinking about well how secure is my employment if I was to become unemployed, like would I have to take a pay cut to try and get back into the workforce? Um I I'd probably think um I guess, should I start investing? I wouldn't think that that would be on the table at, at this point in time, just because if, you, if you're doing that, you're obviously, I guess, taking away from your, um, I guess, um, cash to be able to withstand, like an emergency savings account, for instance. Mm. Um, so I, I think like in this instance, another strategy could be whilst times are I guess, still good um, economically and uh, like the property market hasn't been affected and you're you're still in the job and have serviceability and whatnot, it could be worth chatting to your bank or chatting to your broker and just seeing if there are any options out there, I guess, to refinance and, I guess, take more um, out of the, uh, I guess, equity of the house and keep it in the offset account. Um, So by keeping it in the offset account, you're not going to be paying any more interest, for instance. But under that scenario, at least if something happened, you do have you can use that those funds in the offset account to get over like a short-term funding I guess um, deficit to to keep paying those repayments so you don't have the bank knocking on your door.
0: Can I jump in there? Can can you just um, repeat that again? So you're saying people, let's say this person has four hundred thousand dollars on their mortgage, their house might be worth six hundred thousand dollars. So there's two hundred thousand dollars the difference there in equity, and what are you saying they can do? They may be able to do with that.
1: Yeah, so if they're still employed, for instance, so most banks, if you can service the loan, um, is you can, I guess, take funds out of the uh, property. So most banks will lend up to um, 80% um, of, of the value of the property um, and you can kind of, I guess, take that out, like, I guess, an equity rate lease out of the property um, and keep, keep that in the offset account, uh, I guess, ready under that scenario. Um, and I think that the reason why it's to do it now rather than later because if... Usually, like, for instance, if the property market went down, that 80% is of a, I guess, you, you lose equity in the property, so that 80% is based on a lower property value. And also at that point, like, like you're, you're, you could be out of work and, like, no bank's going to, I guess, refinance it at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'd be a matter of probably a, a broker would probably be best to chat to in this scenario because they've probably got a more broader range of the um, different lenders. But I think it would it's not going to be available to everybody um, and it's not going to be available to every bank, um, but it definitely be a strategy worth considering.
0: Yeah. So it's something that if you're going to do it, perhaps it's best to start thinking about it now. Um, I imagine there are plenty of people that listen to this podcast that think, you know, I've got a house, I've got a mortgage. What can I do? Cause you kind of feel frozen. You know, you've already committed to a house. You might have kids on the way. You know, what is there anything that I can do that frees up cash? Well, this might be something. So that's a really good, um, Piece of, I guess, uh, advice here, just to for people to call their call their bank or call their broker and and just ask the question, right? And, and,
1: and I, I would stress that the. Um... I guess you'd need to be, I guess, quite conscious of what's going on as well and quite disciplined. Um, for instance, if you, I guess, go and take funds out of the offset account, um, out of, if you take equity out of the property and put it in the offset account, like generally under that scenario, people might feel richer, for instance, and they might, mm. even though this is an emergency account, they might feel more inclined to go and spend that on other things. And, like that's obviously, that's defeating the purpose of it all. Yeah. Um, yep. So it's a bit of a, I guess, uh, a niche strategy um, i guess under that scenario and it's really i guess just thinking ahead and um, i guess a risk mitigation strategy um, yeah yeah just to make sure that it's not going to work against you and that you're not going to get tempted to put those funds into the um into the share market for instance
0: um, or go on a holiday know, or something like
1: that <laughs> yeah i think that's probably like probably the biggest thing that uh, so that banks like Offset accounts are great, and banks, um, I guess, will love to, I guess, say that how good they are for um, the, the borrowers, which they definitely are. Um, but there's a bit of mental accounting going on, and I suspect that it could work in the bank's favour. Um, so, for instance, if you have $100,000 in an offset account and versus 100% in the redraw account, you're probably going to feel richer. If you, even though your debt position, your net debt position is exactly the same, you're probably going to feel richer if you have the funds in the bank account and more likely to spend that as opposed to having it in the redraw because you feel like, well, I'm actually borrowing these funds even though it's exactly the same outcome. Mm. Um, So I think that's the biggest trap with offset accounts, as amazing as they are from a more tax point of view than anything else. Um, It's another um, issue, I guess, Um, is that that just from a, um, I guess, mental point of view, I feel that you you need the discipline around it to make sure that you're not going to spend more just because of the offset account because then it really defeats the purpose in that regard.
0: Yeah, just, I guess, know why you're doing this in the first place. And it's definitely, in my opinion, if you are accessing this because you are worried, it's not okay, in my opinion, to then go two months down the track, use that money. And then in a way that, I guess, increases your risk, because the reason why you do it is to risk off, not risk on, um, which makes sense. Um, okay, and I, so- I think the last got- point
1: I'll um, add to that, sorry, is um, like if you're in a really good spot and you have a lot of equity, um, like a lot of equity and you might have, I guess, cash savings and an offset account, um, like people might be, I guess, tempted to invest in this situation and that, mm. that may well be a good strategy. Um, so usually I, I find that most people when they come to me and they're looking to invest, and they've got their home loan and they're they're doing really well and getting ahead and it does make sense to invest is that they'll just invest I guess cash from an offset account Um, and that's usually probably not the best strategy Um, just because if you have a a home loan which is a non-deductible debt and you have an offset account attached to that if you take funds Mm -hmm. out of that offset account you're effectively increasing your non-deductible borrowings and so you're going to pay interest on that you're not to get a tax deduction on that interest. Mm. Um, so in, in that scenario, obviously there's a bit of debt structuring and whatnot to chat to your broker about, um, broker or bank in the, in this scenario. But usually a better strategy, even though it goes against it, it's exactly the same, is that you'd actually go to the bank and ask to borrow to invest in terms of, I guess, utilise the equity in your home so you're still borrowing at those cheaper rates and it's not like a margin loan or anything like that where there's the additional risk with margin calls and things like that. Um, but you, I guess, set up a separate facility for the, for the sole intention of investing um, and when you borrow to invest, you get the tax deduction associated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably the biggest mistake that I, I find that um, a lot of people, I guess, who, who go and invest is that they just invest cash and you're, you're going to pay interest in any case and may as well get the tax deduction for it.
0: So could someone who has, say, $300,000 of equity in their home, could they set up, a, when you say a separate facility, does the, in the bank's eyes, is that secured against the property because that's where the equity is?
1: Yeah, so it's still secured against the um, property. So no, no banks are going to take, I guess, shares of security yeah. um, in that scenario because you're talking margin loans um, in that regard. Um, so, yeah, it's still, um, you, you need the equity in the property um, to do that. Um, sometimes you might need to create the equity um, effectively by putting like the offset account into the loan and then reborrowing borrowing it. Um, yeah. And there's probably a couple other things to consider then. Uh, probably, I guess. Without, I, guess <laughs> I guess saying to get advice, obviously, it's important. To <laughs> yeah. do, so um, <laughs> it would be worth, I guess, just making sure you're aware of the implications of doing that, because there could be scenarios where you just have to be careful. Yeah, um, for sure around that. Um, but yeah, in that scenario is that if you think about it, let's say that you um, have a three hundred thousand dollar loan against a six hundred thousand dollar property, um, you could go to the bank and say that I want to borrow a hundred thousand dollars in a separate facility here. Um, then you have, I guess, a $300,000 home loan, which you had previously. Um, and you had a $100,000, I guess, separate loan there, which has gone in. And then you can invest that um, into the share market, for instance. So if you're paying interest at 3% on that $100,000, um, that's going to be a $3,000, I guess, tax deduction per year. And then so if you're on the 39%, I guess, marginal tax rate, you'll get, um, I guess, one third or um, you'll get, I guess, $200 or mm. whatever, whatever that works out to be um, in terms of tax savings per year. Yeah. Um, so if you think about that over like uh, over the long term, like ten ten years or so, if you're thinking about those tax savings every single year, um, I guess that's where the value in the strategy can be, at, rather than I guess just paying the interest anyway, and not getting the tax benefit of it if you're going to do yeah. it anyway. It's not just
0: one year's um, you know interest or deduction. It's um it's multiple years of savings. So that's obviously compounding, as we talked about. The top of the show is really important, Kyle. I'm going to direct your attention to the final one, which is. Uh, something that I kind of modeled off people around me. So these conversations that I have had recently with people asking very similar questions. And I'll quote: My wife and I are in our late fifties. We plan to retire in five to ten years. Our super account is showing a loss of three hundred thousand dollars over the past six weeks combined. Should we move from high growth to mostly cash? We have one hundred thousand dollars outside of super in you know emergency cash, and we're virtually debt free meaning we have enough cash to last us about 1.5 years, even if we lost our jobs. So we've got an older couple here. Um, they're, they're in a, a, a growthier strategy, but they've, they said that they're down $300,000. They've got a, a good base beneath them because they're preparing for retirement in five to 10 years. What would, would you say, you know, maybe it's time to take some risk off the table. Um, what, what advice would you have for someone like, in this situation?
1: Yeah so I think uh, when you're around this um period and I think it's probably not as appreciated as it should be is that when you're, I guess, coming up to retirement and in the earlier years of retirement, I guess your actual, I guess, retirement outcomes are severely impacted more so than ever by the investment mm. returns around that period, um, just because generally you're going to have the higher balance around that. So you're, I guess, more likely to be affected by that. So for instance, I guess you can relate it back. If you have $30,000 in super and you have bad investment horizon now, like that's not re- going to, I guess, affect you um, too much over the long term as opposed to... Um, but naturally like bigger balances. So usually, I guess there'd be the like that's something just to be really conscious of. That it's probably more important to think about your investment strategy when you get these bigger balances, rather than when you have a lower balance. Um, so I guess if you're already um, already like well, you're already in higher growth, which I would question um, coming up to retirement, if that was the uh, like five to ten years to retirement if that was the appropriate investment option. But if you've already done that um, in terms of you've already got those falls, it probably wouldn't be. Um, the so well, I do given advice, so I guess, probably wouldn't be the best strategy to, to go mm. to cash. Mm. Um, I think probably the, and it's, it's quite tempting to do so and you can have all the best investment um, fundamentals and investment rules like when, you, when the markets are good in terms of your strategy, um, in terms of... I guess uh, I guess being a long-term investor—that's I guess very easy to say. But when I guess markets are at points like they are now, it's um, easier said than done to do what you originally were going to do. Um, so I, I think probably uh, I like I started in the industry in two thousand and thirteen. So I, obviously I was in, in school and uni when the GFC happened. But what I found is starting in two thousand and thirteen, the markets had just about recovered from their falls. Um, mm-hmm. And so when, when I started, there was a lot of I guess new. I guess, clients come into the firm that I was working at at the time with significant amounts of super, like super, just invested solely in cash. Um, Yeah, right. So what happened is that they, I guess, they might have, let's say, let's call it a million dollars to keep it around. They might have had a million dollars at the start of the GFC in 2007, 2008 when it it started to crash Um, and it went down to, let's say, probably if they're in a high growth um, fund, maybe like $500,000, $600,000. And they held on for as long as they can. But it just gets to the point where you, I guess, think, well, this is going to go to $200,000. And that's when the fear and um, obviously people get tempted to change their allocation at that point in time. Um, And then they, I guess, they're in cash and then the markets recover invariably. Um, And then once the markets recover, that's when they feel, um, I guess, comfort to enter back into the market. Um, so with those examples in mind, so 2013, the market has largely recovered and um, people are coming to me and they've pretty much missed all of those, I guess, rises back up and now they're investing. Um, so that turned out to still be a better strategy than not because from 2013 till pretty much now, um, the bull market um, continued after that. Um, but they would have been significantly better off because uh, they missed they missed out on those initial gains. Um, so I, I think with, with that in mind, I guess using that example, um, it, it probably would be to I'd, I'd suggest or I'm suggesting to all my customers, even though it can be tempting to think that you know where the market's going and that it's going to go down further. Um, no one's been able to do that over the long term and you have to be right twice in terms of you have to be right that I guess now's a good time to sell in terms of it's going down. And then you have to be right a second time in terms of you need to know when to buy back in. Uh, that's why it's particularly hard to, um, I guess, time the market. Mm. Um, and I think there's a, there's an interesting... Um, um, I guess there's a financial advisor, a consultant, I guess, and he has a particular skill at just drawing sketches um, that, I guess, explain, I guess, complex issues and really simple diagrams. So I'll link you to that for the um, show notes. For sure. what, what he does is he just, I guess, just draws like your market cycle in terms of you've got your, I guess you've got your peak and your troughs and like, so I guess just think of, I guess, a drawing like that. And um, at the top, um, it, it says, I guess at the top of the cycle, it says grade buy. And then at the bottom, at the bottom of the track, it says "Fear sell and that says repeat until broke. Um, so just thinking of that in mind that everybody wants to buy when the market's at the top and everybody wants to sell when the market's at the top, um, at the bottom, sorry. Um, and obviously if you do that every cycle, you're eventually going um, to go broke and lose your investment um, portfolio. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think it's easier said than done at, at times that um, just, I guess, thinking about your, uh, I guess, long-term plan um, and not diverting away from your original plan because that's usually the, the biggest danger um, mm. is changing your, I guess, investment strategy mid-cycle just mainly because of emotions. Yeah, I like, um,
0: how, I like how you brought yeah, that gap in because it's, um, it's yeah, from com. I love the, yeah, the chart. I've got one pre-prepared, so I'll, I'll pop that in the show notes. Yeah,
1: And you added one other thing there. Um, so like in terms of the like $100,000 in cash, um, so I guess you, like some people would be tempted to um, I guess put that into the market for instance and maybe contribute it to super um, and I guess buy at low prices um, yeah I think that that'd be a case by case um, it'd be interesting like you'd obviously have to factor in like thinking back to that previous question like your emergency savings and things like that. Um mm. but um yeah that that would be something to um keep in mind whether if you do have investment capability and you have the I guess emotional um I guess stomach to put that into the market. Um that could be a strategy and probably one thing that I'm doing, I guess, with a lot of um customers at, at the moment is that I think probably dollar cost averaging um, is, is really valuable at these points in time. Um, so if they weren't already, uh, like in terms of obviously before this, um, I think they are particularly now from an emotional point of view. Um, so like for instance. Uh, I was a customer literally on that day, I guess when the market, what, two or three weeks ago when I think it lost 3% or whatever it was when the coronavirus started to impact markets. Um, so we were in a meeting in the morning, we are talking about all of like market cycles, long-term investing, dollar cost averaging and whatnot. And then I guess I got out of the meeting, and saw the market outcomes and things like that. And then, it, I, and then I guess chatting to that, that customer after that, she was a lot less keen naturally to go and buy into the share market and the market had gone, like it was a few days later, and the market had gone down further by that point than she was previously. And if you think of scenarios like that, now, if you look at the arithmetic behind it, now's a better time to invest than it was a month or so ago when she was very, yeah. very, I guess, keen to invest. And even though we were going to implement a dollar cost averaging strategy, and um, still are in all likelihood, um, like she's a lot more, I guess, cautious now and naturally she, she's like, well, like, let's just put it on hold for the moment and let's just see what the markets do. Um, but I, I think trying to take away as, well as many decisions in terms of allowing your emotions to drive your decision as much as possible, I think there's a huge amount of value in that. Um, so if you set up a system in terms of, who knows what the time frame is, but if you say that, I have, let's say, call it $120,000 to keep it round, and say that I'm going to put all of this into the market over the next 12 months, I'm going to put $10,000 in every single month over the next 12 months and just, I guess, averaging out that cost base over that time, like that's a way to take the decisions out of your hand and not to get to, I guess, um, I guess, I guess, change the strategy based on where the market is at that point in time because it's very tempting to do so. Mm. Um, and obviously you've got to factor in like brokerage and transaction cost and things like that. Um, But, yeah, there's a lot of value in terms of, I guess, just trying to take as many um, decisions away from yourself as possible and along that same line is that if you have a strategy, like there could be value in, um, well, I'd say there would be value for a lot of people to, I guess, document that investment strategy And even if, like, you can write it down or potentially even like record a video for yourself to revert back to and say, well, this is my strategy. This is why I'm doing it. I'm a long term investor. Over the long term, market capitalism works and markets um, are going to reward me for the risk that I'm taking on. And just to revert back to that at times, of distress you can say, well, maybe I will just put the, put the investment back in the drawer or I was talking to a customer the other day and I said, just just go and palm your keyboard three times and lock yourself out of your brokerage. <laughs> don't, don't do that necessarily, but along those lines, just try and take as many of the emotions away from it as possible. You'll probably have um, better outcomes. And yeah, probably <laughs> one last point from so talking a lot, obviously. Uh, I'd say that, if everybody invested like they invest their super, I think that'd be a lot better off. Um, maybe not at times like this, people are still tempted to, I guess, change their allocation. Mm. But I find that a lot of people, particularly the young people, uh, you don't really think of super um, very often. You don't, I guess, think of making changes to it and things like that. And sometimes that's to their detriment. But I'd say that that's, I guess, to the benefit of a lot of people because they don't they don't make changes to it um so i think if everybody you know, i guess invested in their personal names as they did in super um, i think they'd probably have better investment outcomes and probably a more pleasant investment experience as well mm. it's interesting right like um I, I found when we did studies in
0: the past of really good investors what we found is that the best investors make fewer decisions and i don't think that's any coincidence i think it's because they make they tend to make better decisions the more they think about it and i, yeah. I listened to an interview with amazon founder jeff bezos and he said. He never ever takes a meeting in the afternoon because he said, my job as, an, as the leader of a company is not to make many decisions, it's to make a few and to make them as best I can. And when better to make a decision than in the morning. So he schedules all of his meetings for the first thing in the morning and none for right. the end of, his, end of the day. And it's a simple idea. He wants to be well rested. He wants to make good decisions. So even if something is pressing, he still waits till the next day to schedule it because that then he knows he'll make a better, cleaner more pure decision. And I think if people think about their investing, not so much as making many little decisions, but many, I mean, one or two major decisions, like committing to investing for a very long period of time, as you say, I mean, a video, a video log of your investing strategy is a new one. I haven't heard of anyone doing that, nor palming, <laughs> nor telling a client to palm the keyboard, if, <laughs> if, that's, <laughs> if that's what's best.
1: But sometimes- if I haven't done it. I didn't put it in the statement of it twice, <laughs> so don't <worry> about
0: that. <laughs> but uh, you're right, you know, sometimes, Having friction between you and the trigger is an important thing. Like, don't shoot first, ask questions later. Ask the questions now so you set yourself on the long term journey to wealth creation because you're going to come across these periods where things aren't as clear cut and those types of knee jerk reactions are actually working against you. Kyle, I'm conscious, yeah. sorry, I'm conscious yeah, sorry. of this going on for a long time. So, I want to, um, before I let you go, I want to ask you if you have. Um, if you could, you don't have to have three, but maybe you've got three simple steps that anyone could take uh, right now during you know this time of uncertainty to just take stock of, of where they're at and maybe put some steps into into place to put them on a good footing.
1: Yeah, so uh, would you be thinking? I guess echoing some of my points, like from an investment point of view, or from yeah. a, I guess risk mitigation work point of view, or I think one of the good ones that
0: you come up with, like for example, is your behaviour. Trick, you know, maybe now's not the time to be looking
1: at your uh, your broker's account, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's probably the danger. Um, Like in terms of like the information flows probably, I guess, quicker than it ever has been. Um, And in the past, for instance, if you had a share investment, like I guess the technology for super funds was probably a lot less, um, Mm. a lot poorer in terms of if you wanted to make an investment change, it was probably like filling out a physical form rather than just logging onto the app and changing it there. And similar with, I guess, brokerage accounts, maybe like you might have had it through a financial advisor or a stockbroker back in the day and just like, I guess there's that, uh, I guess, resistance and there's that extra step to I guess call them up and um, I guess get the advisor to implement that whereas a lot of people now um, I guess I'm a massive fan of uh, I guess ETFs and holding um, I guess investments that way Um, but I guess at times like these it it could be um, to your detriment just because it's so easily at your fingertips. Um, so it's just a matter of, I guess, being conscious of, um, I guess, your behaviour shortfalls that we always, like, pretty much everybody has at times like these, I'd say, um, and just trying to put, I guess, steps in place um, to try and do that and whether or not it's, I guess, finding an investment buddy or, I guess, chatting to your partner or something like that and just being really open and, like, before you just mm. say to yourself, well, if I'm going to make an investment decision, let's... let's I know that my mate, that he invests in the shares, let's, I guess, team up and like, if we're going to do anything, just say that, call each other up and say that, just talk each other down. Um, I think in terms of revert back to our strategies and things like that. So I think it's, at these times, it's more an emotional game than actually um, choosing the best investments and things like that. Um, and yeah, I think that just being aware and putting strategy in place um, mm. would be around that. and. I think at times like these, like as I say, like I'm a big um, fan of um, ETFs and like, obviously mainly, I guess, cheap fees. That's the, the thing that I'm the biggest fan of, I'd say, which is a function of um, ETFs um, and index, index funds. But I think that at times like these, there could be like actually emotional benefits of some active funds. Um, and the reason mm. I say that is that if you're looking at like Vanguard Australian shares or VAS or look at the code like it doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people and you know that I have I hold 200 companies or 300 companies in the form of VAS and it doesn't really mean anything whereas if you look at like active managers for instance is that they usually like they can like show you their portfolio and they probably have like stories and you can say well they they own this really good company Um, so in terms of that it can be tempting at times to just think of the share market as just a number on a board. Um, and when you look at index funds, that's probably, I, I guess that, that kind of encourages that way of thinking. Mm. Um, and on the other side of that, I think to say, I'm, I probably have a bias towards index funds, no commercial bias, just um, a bias just based on the fund fundamentals around that. But I do... Mo- uh, certainly at times like this i acknowledge the benefits potentially of active funds in terms of if you know that well my active fund holds 20 of these i guess amazing companies um i'm probably i'm I might feel more secure about that because i can relate to well if microsoft isn't around or apple's not around or, or bank's not around like the world's going to be a bad place like i like that's going to be a different world to what we live in now so like, mm. like just relaying it back to that and that'd be another thing like because you can still do that if you're invested in index funds and but you're still exposed to these companies um in one way or another um and would just be too if you're going to make a trade or well, look at the actual companies that you're most exposed to um, and i think so if you're in the form of VAS, like so your biggest holding effectively is Commonwealth bank if you're looking at like an international etf like your biggest holding is going to be apple and microsoft and amazon and all these companies so if you think that like that's what's driving your investment return so you're i think that looking at it from that point of view that that could be a way to um i guess make you feel better about your investment portfolio as well and um, mm. that, that flows through to super funds as well so if you're looking to make investment allocation um, changes to your super fund um most super funds will like show their underlying holdings of their investments um, so it's just about digging around on their um, websites and they'll actually tell you that these are our biggest shareholdings and that could be a way to make you feel better that um, I'm not just buying a bit of paper that's moving around on the board. That I'm buying a company, and if, if they go on and keep going down, then at one point or another, people kind of want to buy these companies at these cheaper prices. That kind of puts a um, resistance on it.
0: Yeah, I think you you hit it. You've given some great um, tidbits there. If I was think, thinking about that, you've got just to clarify. When you're talking about active funds, you're talking about fund managers who make decisions over which stocks to include or not, as opposed to an ETF or an index fund which uh, kind of buys the entire market or parts of the market according to a set of rules. I guess the the key message there is just know what you own and why you own it. And I got asked yesterday, you know, oh, who invests super? And it's a common question. I don't want to you know begrudge everyone who doesn't understand investing, but super is just invested in companies. Most of it at the end of the day are in different types of assets that are designed to go up in value over a long period of time. And for me, you know, you can dig around if you want to look at all that type of thing. But just remember that you are invested in something like a business. And if you do indeed, as you said, believe that capitalism works, you believe that people should be rewarded for hard work, for innovations, for these types of things, then that's actually a good thing. Um, 100%. Kyle, as we come to the end, I just want to reassure people and say, you know, this is uncertainty in the financial system. It's obviously looking pretty grim right now. There, you know, there will be some tough times ahead as there has always been you know it's inevitable that we have market crashes and corrections and i got told this morning that uncertainty is the only certainty when the market crashes so you know that's i guess what we're seeing now is a lot of this uncertainty come to the fore so you know maybe we just have to be more comfortable with being uncertain if there is such a possibility but um you know we want to remind people you and i have talked today about a lot of these financial situations but perhaps You know, it's more important and it is indeed more important for people to be thinking more so about making sure you're safe during this uncertain time, keeping yourself, um, you know, distanced if you need to be and just keeping up to date with all of the latest guidance on um, the coronavirus outbreak. So we'll provide some show notes on that. Um, Kyle, I understand and correct me if I'm wrong here that you do a little bit
1: of work from home, right? Yeah, pr- primarily. So, um, yeah, I think more, more and more, um, probably working more and more from home in terms of like doing meetings after hours and stuff. That usually suits more for my customers. And that's probably, um, yeah, so it, 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 I guess going from, I guess, being an employee at an office for a number of years to mm. working from home uh, definitely was a challenge um, <laughs> moving so- from it. And you, I guess got to find hacks around that to make it work for you from a productivity point of view.
0: Yeah, so I was going to end on a lighter note because I know a lot of people, uh, particularly those who work in white collar jobs or can work on their computer remotely, chances are over the next few weeks, a lot of these people will be asked to work from home and perhaps many of them haven't worked from home before. So what, if any, tips can you share with working from home? How do you stay productive at home?
1: Oh, I'd probably say for me personally, uh, it'd come back to sleep. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm probably, I can, can get obsessed with a lot of things and it can be tempting to keep researching things and can, keep, I guess, working on my business and working for customers and whatnot. So I think that uh, it gets to a point that I guess you can be tempted and you can say that I'm only working like I guess the, the, the less I sleep, the more work I can get done and having that kind of mindset. Um, but it gets to the point where you just lose productivity um, altogether. So I think that the, the benefit of working in an office and having a job where you start at 8.30 or 9 o'clock is that obviously you've got that forced, um, I guess, start day and the accountability around that. Um, and also you've got the end clock off. So you've got like that, I guess, end time. Um, mm. So I think it's really around, I guess, just having a, a routine around that. Um, in general, but especially, um, sleep and making sure that, um, I guess you're not working past a certain time. And, um, I guess figuring out what's working for you. But, um, yeah, I think making sure that you're still getting those, um, seven, eight hours of sleep and, mm-hmm. yeah, a couple of other things, probably, um, I guess separation of workspace. And I find for me, getting ready as well. Yep. Uh, I find that it's oh, I'm probably more productive and I get ready, I put shoes on and like just I guess walk down the hallway. It still it seems weird, but just just little things like that and it's horses for courses, obviously finding out what works for you but for sure. around the routine and separation. And I think that um like you and I are in similar boats to this. I, I can hear your I think we've spoken about it before as well. Um can to hear your thoughts as well. I I agree with you, you know, it's keep your
0: routine. If you're going from working in an office, you would normally get up in the morning. You would, first of all, hopefully get changed into some clothes, so perhaps maybe (laughs) don't make it your trackies or or your PJs. Actually get into something that is, you know, jeans, or something that requires effort to get into, because that forms part of this separation between work and home life, but when there's no physical separation, you have to find a mental separation between the two. So, clocking on and off, you know, you start at a certain time, maybe you go for a walk in the morning, and then you, you come back home and you settle in at 8.30, 9 o'clock like you normally would. And at the end of the day, maybe you do the same thing. You go for a walk or you go to the gym or you have some sort of separation or you go for a run or something. And the final one is if you've got kids and a partner, just because you're at home for the next few weeks, potentially that doesn't mean that you, you're home to have fun. If you are working and you've got the computer there, you should find a separate space and you should let them know that, Hey, I'm working during the day. So please respect that. I, I actually have to focus on this. And I think, all in all, the next few weeks, maybe months, um, that'll be a good way for people to go about it. But... I uh, agree. Kyle, um, once again, mate, thank you for joining me on today's uh, episode and to uh, learn... Thanks, what, <laughs> no, 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 mate. It's my pleasure. And I think our listeners are going to take away a lot from this, especially those that I, I'm thinking have um, a home, they've, they, you know, they've got a mortgage, how they can um, manage that and and just just your insights on tax and all the rest of it so if people want to find out more about you where can they where can they do that
1: um so my um, probably the easiest place would be uh, my website so the business is called millennial independent advice but that's pretty wordy and people always misspell millennial i generally find so <laughs> my website is miadvice.com.au yep. so you can think of up- my advice of an i.com it's probably the easiest way and particularly if you're probably going to I guess make any sales uh, please get in touch with me or any, any person I guess
0: yeah to talk people back off the plank of moving to cash perhaps yeah absolutely well Kyle once again mate thanks for reaching out and um, for coming on the show I appreciate your time awesome thanks so much Alan